Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual harassment, murder, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. There is help. When investigating an unexplained death, there are five questions coroners in Ontario, Canada try to answer. One, who is the deceased? Two, when did the death occur? Three, where did the death occur? Four, how did the person die? And five, by what means did they die? In 2007, these questions run through Ron Grizel's mind over and over. Except he isn't a coroner, nor is he a juror at an inquest. He's a dad. And after four years of searching, he only has the answer to the first question. Who is the deceased? His son, Joe. That's all anyone has been able to figure out. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long-dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today... We're heading to a Canadian military school to explore the mysterious death of a cadet named Joe Grizel. The investigation into his case struck many as questionable and led Joe's family to wonder if there were things about the school and Joe himself that were being kept a secret. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's something you need to know going in. Today's story is baffling. It has all the familiar components of an investigation, numerous detective agencies, a community searching for answers, a breadcrumb trail of clues, even a young man's body, and multiple autopsies that should provide some answers about what happened to him. Except they don't. Even as the evidence grows, it always amounts to nothing, which seems impossible. But like I mentioned, this is a baffling story. It starts simply enough, though, in the small town of Chatham, Ontario. It's 2001, and 18-year-old Joe Grizel is kind of a big deal, at least at Ridgetown District High, a school near the rural farmhouse where he grew up. All the Grizels are standouts. Dan, Jim, Nikki, Joe, and Corey are great athletes and good students. Kids who make their parents, Ron and Minnie, proud. As for Joe, he's a wiry teen with light brown hair. He's laid back and gentle in his everyday life. But sports brings out his competitive side. 
His favorite game, the one he's best at, is basketball. Joe grew up shooting hoops against a fierce opponent, his big brother Jim, who now plays college ball at the University of Western Ontario. Joe dreams of following in his brother's footsteps, and in early 2001, during his senior year of high school, all opportunity comes dribbling. A college coach named Craig Norman scouts Joe at a high school game. He knows he doesn't have a superstar on his hands. Joe's only five foot eight and kind of skinny, but he sees the point guard's potential and wants Joe on his team. It's an incredible offer, but there's a catch. Craig Norman is a coach for Canada's Royal Military College. If Joe wants to play college basketball, he has to go to military school. The Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario is revered. It's like Canada's West Point. Many graduates go on to hold top spots in the country's military leadership. The RMC combines military training with typical college classes. Though it takes four years to get a degree, it's really a nine-year commitment because once you graduate, you're expected to complete five years of military service. There are some definite upsides for Joe here. His tuition would be fully covered, and he'd get to shoot hoops for the RMC Paladins. But his family's confused. They're thinking, Joe? In the military? It doesn't seem like a profession that runs in the family. Joe's dad, Ron, is an engineer who works for a gas company. His eldest brother, Dan, is in software. And even Jim, the college basketball star, is studying to be an accountant. Joe's mom, Minnie, has her doubts, but she knows the sway that basketball has over her son. So it's no surprise to her when Joe enrolls at the RMC and leaves home in the summer of 2001. But before he can get on the court, he has to make it through basic training. At the RMC, freshman orientation isn't about signing up for clubs or meeting new friends. It's about slogging through mud, climbing ropes, getting screamed at by older cadets. Joe doesn't handle it well. He gets sick and then performs poorly during a key moment in basic training, the swim test. Joe may not be the best swimmer, but it's hard to measure his skill level. Because this test isn't about doing a decent backstroke, this is water combat training. Cadets have to swim with mock rifles held above their heads. Joe ends up having to wear a life jacket just to get through it. At the end of this ordeal, he fails basic training. It's a harsh blow for a guy who's used to success so harsh that Joe considers dropping out and going to a regular school. But he gives it one more go. This time, he passes. He's officially a student at the RMC. It should be smooth sailing from here, right? Well, maybe it gets a little easier, but not much. Joe has to get up for a 6.30 a.m. parade practice, don a cadet uniform for his classes, and keep his dorm room immaculate. It could be inspected at any time for cleanliness. And basketball, the reason he came to this school in the first place, 
isn't much of a comfort. Joe is a star in high school, but now he's spending a lot of time on the bench. Again, he wonders if the Royal Military College isn't the best fit. But Joe's a fighter, a competitor, and he won't throw in the towel until he's given it his absolute best. To be a better ball player, Joe puts in more training and gains about 15 pounds of muscle. He focuses on his business administration degree and uses a to-do list to schedule obligations and time with his new friends. In late 2001, he starts dating a fellow cadet named Melissa Haggart. They soon become inseparable, spending most of their time together in Joe's dorm. By the start of his junior year in the fall of 2003, Joe Grizel is kind of a big deal again. The kid who failed basic training is now a campus king. He's on the dean's list and is one of the top 10 students in his program. His superiors say he's the kind of cadet you send to recruitment fairs. Because Joe's a testament to how hard work pays off. A shining example of the RMC. Of course, it's not always easy. Joe falls asleep in class sometimes. He's put off by the strict military vibe of the school, though that's a common complaint. And at basketball games, he still doesn't get a ton of court time. But Joe seems to be doing great. Until something changes. But before we talk about this change, let's go through the days leading up to it. When everything is still reliably routine. On the weekend of October 18th and 19th, Joe plays a basketball tournament in Halifax. Once he gets back to Kingston on Sunday, he and Melissa go to dinner and a movie. Melissa spends the night in Joe's dorm room. Then she gets up at 6 a.m. to go back to her room. A typical night. On Monday, October 20th, Joe goes to his classes. He sees Melissa on breaks, he goes to basketball practice, Melissa comes over to sleep, then leaves at 6 a.m. Another typical regimented day. Then comes Tuesday, October 21st. This is when Joe veers from his routine. He skips morning class, which is unusual. He does show up for lunch at the mess hall, and after that, he plays video games in his friend Kevin's dorm. That afternoon, he stops by Professor Margaret Shepard's office, whose class he missed. He picks up an assignment and promises he'll be there tomorrow. Joe goes to basketball practice from 4.30 to 6.45 p.m., then eats dinner with his teammates afterwards. By 11 p.m., he and Melissa are cozy in his dorm room. They both work on the same law assignment due tomorrow. Melissa is on Joe's bed, while Joe's at the desk on his computer. Every so often, they stop to talk. They make plans for Friday, Joe's basketball game, then dinner and a movie. Around 1 a.m., Melissa proofreads her assignment. She's done, but Joe's still typing away. Melissa's getting sleepy. The last thing she sees before she drifts off is Joe. Out of his rigid cadet uniform, Comfy in a Nike sweatshirt, khakis, and new suede shoes. Working hard. But 
When Melissa wakes up at 5.30 a.m., Joe isn't there. His computer's still on. So is the lamp. His watch and his wallet are there, too. At first, Melissa reasons with herself. Well, maybe Joe stayed up. But he doesn't pull all-nighters, even for big papers. He likes to rest for basketball practice. And he just likes to sleep, period. And even so, well, that wouldn't explain why he left. Maybe he went to the gym. But Joe and Melissa usually leave each other notes to say where they're going. And she doesn't see a post-it anywhere. Melissa waits for a bit to see if he'll come back. When he doesn't, she heads to her room around 6 a.m., like always. But her worries mounting. She's asking herself a question that will eventually consume her life. Where did Joe go? Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Today I'm sitting down with Hesu Joe, licensed therapist and head of clinical operations at BetterHelp, to discuss mental health, the human experience, and my journey with therapy. Hesu, can you tell me about online therapy? How does it work? And is it effective? It's not that different from traditional in-person therapy. It's just you're not meeting in an office anymore. You're meeting through your device. So you're still able to connect with a real-life person. In terms of efficacy, we use questions from common assessments like the GAD-7, PHQ-9, and others. And what we're finding so far is that a lot of clients, over time, report lessened symptoms. You're incorporating skills that you learn with your therapist into your real-life relationships. And you schedule your weekly sessions just like you would in traditional therapy. And then you work towards a healthy, happy, functioning life. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched over 3 million people with professionally licensed therapists that are available 100% online. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash parcast. That's betterhelp.com slash parcast. It's Wednesday, October 22nd, 2003. And Melissa Haggart is a wreck. When she went to sleep last night, her boyfriend, Joe Grizel, was at her side. When she woke up, he wasn't. She has classes to attend, but during her breaks, she looks for him. He's not in the mess hall. Or in class. She checks his dorm and his hangouts, but Joe's just gone. And she's getting really worried. Melissa tells Joe's basketball teammate, Kevin DeLude. He goes to Joe's dorm and sees that in addition to his watch and wallet, Joe's keys and phone are also still sitting there. As is Joe's uniform, which he's required to wear during daytime hours at the Royal Military College. Kevin doesn't seem as panicked as Melissa, but he does think it's odd. He's also concerned on a practical level. If Joe's skipping class, it could affect his standing with the Paladins. It could affect the whole team. Kevin wants to tell someone in charge, but he doesn't go to a professor or administrator. He tells the most trusted adult around, Coach Craig Norman. Coach calls up Ron and Minnie Grizel and asks if Joe went home without telling anyone. 
His parents say no, but they don't seem too concerned. They assure Coach Norman, Joe will turn up. The comfort of their promise only lasts until late afternoon, when Joe misses basketball practice. This is an even bigger red flag than Joe leaving all his personal belongings behind. He hasn't missed a single practice in two years. Now, Melissa, Kevin, and Coach Norman agree something is very wrong. The next day, Coach calls Ron and Minnie to tell them Joe's been gone for a full day. Campus police have been notified and are searching for him. Joe's parents make plans to rush up to Kingston and help. But before they get there, things take a turn. Coach Norman is called into his superior's office, where he's told not to contact the Grizzels anymore. Coach takes issue with this big time. He recruited Joe for the RMC, and he feels a sense of responsibility to his family. But his hands are tied because it's clear. The military police are clamping down on intel about Joe, even as their search for him is ramping up. On Thursday, members of the Canadian Forces National Investigative Services, or NIS, arrive on campus and by Friday, they file a serious incident report about Joe. They don't say anything about foul play. At this point, they're investigating all possible causes for Joe's disappearance and hope to find him alive. Now, on the one hand, NIS involvement is a good thing. The organization investigates serious military crimes. They're pros. But on the other hand, some think that the NIS likes to focus on optics, to clean up messes, protect their own, and pursue justice that benefits the military's reputation. The NIS may be the heavy hitters, but they are not the only ones searching. The Ontario Provincial Police and the Kingston Police also look high and low for Joe. They comb the RMC campus and the Kingston area, including shelters and hospitals. They interview Joe's classmates and check his computer. They do their searches, unleash rescue dogs, and send divers into the Cataraqui River, which empties into bays by the RMC. Though water's pretty shallow and the divers are using sonar. But despite all these efforts, there's no trace of Joe. As October becomes November, the community gets involved. RMC students, Joe's friends and teammates fan out across the city. They distribute flyers that read, please help us find Joe. Joe's parents appear in interviews, their pain and confusion laid bare. Many worries Joe is injured or incapacitated, just waiting for his family to find him. One person who isn't on site for the search is Melissa. It's too painful, so she retreats to her parents' home in Ottawa. She comes back for NIS questioning, 
but she can't bear to join the manhunt. She worries she'll be the one to find Joe. She says they were looking in dumpsters and places that I didn't want to be looking for my best friend. But Melissa's fear that she'll find Joe doesn't come true because someone else finds him. It's the morning of November 13th, 22 days after Joe's disappearance. There's a violent windstorm underway. Around 8 a.m., an RMC employee crosses the LaSalle Causeway, a bridge over the Cataraqui River. The river empties into a rocky bay near campus, and the employee sees something floating near the shore. A body. Later that morning, Ron Grizel goes to the Kingston General Hospital morgue. Investigators pull back the sheet, and Ron immediately identifies the body that washed up in the bay. It's his son, Joe. He's shirtless, wearing the pants and shoes he had on the last time Melissa saw him. He's got a chipped front tooth and injuries to his lip and nose. Investigators can't immediately determine a cause of death. The consensus is that it was either an accident, suicide, or foul play. Which, uh, obviously doesn't really narrow down the possibilities. In any case, the Grizels will have to wait for further testing before getting an answer to any of the four remaining questions they'll come to know so well. When did Joe die? Where did Joe die? How did Joe die? And by what means? While they wait for information, the Grizels make funeral preparations. Joe's military funeral happens on Friday, November 21st, a month after he disappeared. It's a sad, stately affair held at St. Joseph's Church in Chatham, Ontario, near where Joe grew up. Cadets shoot rifles, play Amazing Grace on bagpipes, and support the devastated Grizels, as well as Joe's girlfriend, Melissa. As family and friends mourn, the NIS is working on an explanation for what happened. By early December, they have a theory. Joe Grizel died by suicide. They assemble a 16-point document with evidence that they think supports this idea. Now, if you think this feels premature, you're not alone. It's been less than a month since Joe was found, and the family doesn't even have the final autopsy results yet. It doesn't seem like the NIS has had enough time to conduct a thorough investigation. Which might be why the available summary of their findings feels anecdotal. It outlines that some believe Joe may have struggled with depression, that he wasn't happy with military life, some other rumors are that Melissa and Joe were on the rocks, or that he was going to be cut from the basketball team. To Joe's loved ones, 
this evidence seems either flimsy or flat-out wrong. Melissa denies the relationship was in jeopardy, and Coach Norman refutes the basketball claim. He wouldn't cut a player six weeks into the season. These rumors aside, friends and family insisted nothing about Joe's behavior indicated that he experienced suicidal ideation. But it is important to understand nobody can truly know what Joe was thinking or feeling when he disappeared. Studies have shown the decision to die by suicide can happen in minutes, so there may not have been any quote-unquote signs for Joe's loved ones to notice. Of course, barring tangible evidence like a suicide note or autopsy findings, the NIS can't prove their theory either. Remember, Other possible causes of death include accidental drowning and foul play. But Melissa and Joe's family aren't necessarily convinced by those either. Despite his son's swimming struggles during training, Ron Grizel thinks Joe is competent enough to survive if he found himself in the Cataraqui River. While the water isn't that deep, and while it's unknown what the river was like on the night Joe disappeared... Conditions aren't usually rough. As for foul play, Melissa doesn't believe another cadet could have killed Joe. That doesn't rule out another attacker. But according to Lieutenant Ryan Snow of the NIS, quote, As it stands right now, it does not appear to be foul play. Ultimately, confirmation of how Joe died can only come from the medical examiner's report. But things are dragging on that front. It isn't released until June 2004, well after NIS investigators have left town and seven months after Joe's body was found. When it does finally come out, the report is mystifying. There are two huge pieces of information missing from Joe Grizel's autopsy report. The coroner gives no estimate of when he died in relation to when his body was found and offers zero explanation for how he died. The autopsy just says, no specific cause of death identified. There's no evidence he died by suicide. There's also no clear evidence he drowned. The medical examiner didn't find any water in his lungs. This could indicate he was dead before he was even in the water. After months of pain and speculation, Joe's parents, Ron and Minnie, are stunned that this is what the NIS investigation's results are. All they have are more unanswered questions. Like, why was Joe shirtless? And if Joe was in the water the whole time and police divers with sonar were searching the river, why did it take three weeks to find him? The Grizels can't focus on healing. They have a mission. Ron says, I've got all my life to grieve. Right now, I've got a very short window to do what I've got to do. Find some answers. Ron and Minnie are determined to get to the bottom of this even if it means having Joe's body exhumed for a second autopsy. They're not happy about it, 
as Ron puts it, quote, you don't do anything twice unless you didn't do it right the first time. But it's necessary because military NIS investigators have seemingly closed the book on the case. Despite the inconclusive autopsy results, their assumption is still that Joe died by suicide. Luckily, the Ontario Provincial Police, also called the OPP, have taken over. They promised to find answers for the Grizels. In November 2004, a year after he was found dead, Joe Grizel is exhumed and coroners perform another autopsy. They're still investigating the same three probable causes of death, accidental drowning, foul play, or suicide. But this time, the Grizels hire an independent pathologist to monitor the Ontario coroner's work. Unfortunately, the results are just as inconclusive. The Grizels don't get a clearer picture of how their son died. Nobody seems to be able to give them any answers. The only upside is this. The OPP are willing to keep trying. They're going to look into all possible scenarios, including foul play. And by 2005, they've already got at least one suspect. This person is an unnamed RMC alum, a few years older than Joe, who hangs around campus a lot. The man was known to sexually harass male students and was eventually banned from the grounds, but kept coming back anyway. Detectives interrogate him, and the lead doesn't pan out. Details are sparse, but it doesn't seem like this man harassed Joe. It's not even clear if they knew each other. After that, there aren't really any more leads to follow. By the end of 2005, the police declare they don't believe foul play was a factor in Joe's death, and they won't be filing any criminal charges. It's a huge blow for the Grizels, who have put their lives on hold for this investigation, Joe's older brother Jim even quit his job abroad and returned to Canada to help out. Despite all this pain and personal sacrifice, the family is back at square one. Until the chief coroner comes to them with an idea. What if they held an inquest into Joe's death? An inquest is a judicial inquiry of an unexplained death. In Joe's case... It means pouring over evidence from the autopsies along with the NIS and OPP investigations to see if any stone was left unturned. The coroner's inquest is held in the fall of 2006. During the proceedings, examiners say Joe's chipped tooth and bruised lip could indicate he was punched or attacked, which may lend credence to the foul play theory. But the examiner also admits the injuries could have happened after Joe died, presumably from being carried by the currents or hitting the rocks on the river shore. Other than this, it's all a rehash of the few known facts. The Grizels want to widen the scope of their questions. They want to know how the NIS and the OPP carried out their investigation, since they believe Joe's case 
wasn't handled with enough care. But the Grizels are told they can't ask those kinds of questions. And within a matter of days, the inquest is flat out canceled. Apparently, the jury saw some documents they weren't supposed to. To ensure there's no bias, a new inquest will have to happen at a later time. The Grizels are furious. Someone made a mistake that canceled the inquest and they are paying for it. But if there's one thing we know about this family, it's that they are persistent. So persistent that they get a new inquest set for March 2007. This time, they do get more information. Joe's former girlfriend, Melissa, reveals a story Joe told her when he was alive. In high school, after a girlfriend cheated on him, he considered attempting suicide. A friend stopped him just in time. Joe came away feeling like he was cared for and did not want to repeat the experience. Now, it's unclear if Melissa mentioned this in her NIS interviews in 2003 or if she kept this information until the 2007 inquest. She could have thought it wasn't relevant to Joe's state of mind in 2003, which is what Joe's dad, Ron, believes. Either way, the story comes as a surprise to Joe's parents, who had no idea that he'd struggled with those kinds of feelings in the past. Another upsetting find comes from a medical examiner. In their opinion, it's possible Joe was only in the water for one to two weeks before he was found. Remember, three weeks passed between Joe's disappearance and the recovery of his body. So Ron can't help but wonder if his son was alive for some part of the search effort. He says, If I find out that my son was alive for a week and a half while I was here in Kingston and didn't find him, can you imagine what that's going to feel like? The Grizzels may not get an answer on this front. Because after four years of investigation and heartbreak, they're no closer to definitively answering those remaining questions. When did Joe die? Well, the consensus is 8.40 a.m. on November 13th, 2003. But that's really just the time his body was recovered. Where did Joe die? It's unknown. And the lack of evidence that he drowned means it could have happened before he was ever in the Cataraqui River. How did Joe die? The report just says, unascertained, non-natural causes. And by what means did Joe die? Again, as the report states, by means undetermined. Between 2008 and 2009, the Canadian military holds its own board of inquiry to review the factors that led to Joe Grizel's death. Their findings are largely the same as the other investigations, since they're using the same evidence. But while the Grizels have four questions that guide their hunt for answers, the military has a few more. Like, was Joe on duty at his time of death? And they say that's unable to be determined. Was Joe's death attributable to his military service? Well, they say no. Joe's death had nothing to do with his role in the military. The report does suggest ways the RMC could improve, like guardrails by the river to prevent accidents 
or more mental health services for students. But ultimately, the RMC and the military seem satisfied that Joe's death had nothing to do with his role as a cadet or life at the school. Of course, it's possible there were other factors in Joe's life that led to his passing. But his death wasn't an isolated incident. There have been other deaths at the Royal Military College. Simon Bove was a Dean's List student who died in his sleep in 2003. His family was told he died of natural causes before an investigation had even begun. And cadets Harrison Kellertaz, Brett Cameron, and Matthew Sullivan, who all died by suicide at the RMC in 2016. Well, their families criticized the NIS for withholding the information that led them to determine it was suicide. They also blamed the RMC for not doing enough to help students who struggled with mental health issues. And then there's Mathieu Leclerc, a well-liked third-year basketball player who skipped class one day in 2012, just like Joe, whose body was found in the water by the RMC just like Joe, and whose cause of death was listed as undetermined after an NIS investigation. Just like Joe. Bad things happen everywhere, and it's possible this is all coincidental. But Joe's family, and myself, have a hard time believing that. So the Grizzels forge on, after years of pleading with Ontario's chief coroner to reopen Joe's case, they finally meet with him in February 2020. For the first time, they feel heard. And Joe once again becomes an investigative priority. In early 2022, Detective Sean Glassford is assigned to look over the case file. It's thousands of pages long, but he hopes new forensic technology can clear up what went on in those murky cataracty waters back in 2003. Detective Glassford cautions the Grizzels. There's no guarantee he'll find answers for them. And as of this recording, the case is still under review. But Ron and Minnie hold out hope that those four remaining questions, the ones that have been haunting them for almost 20 years, will soon be put to rest. Until that happens, it seems like the Grizzels are going to keep fighting and give it their all. That's what Joe would have done. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. If you have information to share about Joe Grizel, please contact the Ontario Provincial Police. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau, 
The show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Amin Osman, edited by Karis Allen and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death, pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.